episode start, and Matthew Klippenstein are back again for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's weekly podcast about the hottest news and most interesting stories in the clean tech field, focused especially on electric vehicles and solar energy. Check in weekly via cleantechnica.com, SoundCloud, or iTunes to get your electric fix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 47 of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Matthew Klippenstein here with a returning Zachary Sheehan. I'm going to say 47 is actually my lucky number. So oh, really? My, my, my uh, fake lucky number. I mean, you know, the number that I somehow think is lucky for me. I don't know why. Okay. Uh, long history. but So it's funny that I'm coming back on episode 47, actually. As a quick reminder, show notes are available at cleantechnica.com, and you can support Clean Technica's Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. How go things with you, Zachary? Quite good, sir. Yeah, quite good. Enough time to jump back into podcasting a bit, so that's fun. Yeah, that's fantastic. I guess, um, I'm not sure, is it the golden anniversary, which is... Uh, the 50th anniversary, we have that coming up, so that'll be a big event for us. Yeah, I always try to, try to get Chris DeMauro back on. Retro um, flashback. Yeah. So uh, I guess we're launching in with this mixture of stories about cobalt supply, which is sort of the new uh, scare tactic for, for people who are trying to say that the EV revolution isn't going to happen, that Tesla's going to crash tomorrow or yesterday or whatever, that all of these big automotive targets for EV transition are, are just fluff. So one of the hype topics these days is cobalt and the idea that cobalt supply, well, well obviously right now is too limited for this uh, vision, but also the, the hype is that it can't be scaled up and it takes maybe 30 years to develop a cobalt mine, as uh, one author wrote, and that it's going to be extremely expensive, which will prevent the price of EV batteries from dropping, like everyone says they will keep dropping. So I, you know, I saw many articles about this starting to pop up and I decided to uh, you know, talk to some experts, talk to a few people, I think four, three or four people at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, including their head of storage and talked in person and on email a few times about this. And basically the, you know, the story I got was there's a lot of cobalt in the world. Historically, it's been mined as a sort of after product, a second product, not a it's not the primary target of the mining. I think primary targets are nickel and uh, I, I'm not sure. Copper. So uh, copper, copper is one for sure. But yeah, so it's so so that's one thing. And then basically, you know, they said as the price of cobalt jumps, which it already has, that's a signal for investors. You know, people with a lot of money who want to make more money to get into the industry and to find uh, a way to, to make more money off of the growing demand. And that leads to quick ramp, you know, relatively quick ramp of mining and production. And that this, this is all just part of the disruptive technology trend and the experience curve. And it's going to be resolved, basically, is what's the message they, they sent. Several of their people sent, including founder Michael Liebrich, who I met with in person a few weeks ago. Um, and he actually was giving a presentation at a conference we were co-organizing, uh, the Mobility Conference in Abu Dhabi, co-organized by Global EVRT and Clean Technica and Mazdar. And he actually had a, a slide in his keynote presentation that was about this before we even talked about it. So he had this slide uh, showing that solar-grade silicon had a very similar price jump in uh, yeah, mid-knots of 2000. And, you know, this was like a big quote, scare in the solar industry. If you're covering the solar industry back then, you might remember this, yeah? 
but it quickly led to a huge uh, increase in production of solar grade silicon, which quickly dropped the price of silicon, which quickly led to price drops for solar panels, solar cells and solar panels, which uh, helped the industry to go faster and faster. He, he showed this next to the cobalt, the jump in the price of cobalt and lithium hydroxide as well. And basically said, this is going to, you know, the market, people with money are going to respond and solve this issue. And there's plenty of cobalt around the world to, to get once the money is, is in the game. So that's, that's the idea. Um, there's more details to it, but that's, that's the basic story. Maybe you have some more to say before I talk about the potential barriers that are not really acknowledged enough there. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Um, I remember the solar grade silicon price spike well, because that's around the time I think when first solar went public. And if I remember correctly, it went from something like $30 to $300. I'll, <laughs> I'll get the numbers right for the, uh, for the show notes. And then it dropped back down to about $30 as the price of solar silicon came down. First solar is an excellent company, just got a little bit ahead of itself uh, because everyone thought there was going to be this permanent shortage of solar grade silicon. I don't own stock in, in uh, First Solar either. I'm not, uh, not uh, pushing them. I do own stock in First Solar, but oh, I didn't get in back. <laughs> I got in later. Just uh, I just think it has, it's got good technological leadership and still a lot of potential. But uh, anyway, back to, back to you. So the thing with the solar grade silicon, which is a little bit different from uh, like raw metals or the bulk commodities, is that commodity price cycles tend to take a few years. So much as the solar grade silicon did take a few years to kind of finally resolve itself and then a little while longer to crash further down. It does take, I think you mentioned John Peterson in this article, who was putting out this number about 30 years for mine, which not really applicable. Maybe you have to, you have to discover something first, but there, there are always discoveries around. You can cherry pick when the prices pick up. Then it does take a few years, maybe even five years, depending on uh, where you're located, to get something up and running. So, so there is a lag. And what we saw when um, China had a big, big economic development in the, in the noughts, like 2000 to 2008 maybe, a lot of um, metals prices did go up substantially. And then since then, they've kind of backed way down as the, uh, as the supply shortage has, has passed away. So while it's entirely possible that cobalt could go up for or stay high for a few years, it would not be expected that it would stay high forever, especially since, as you noted in the article, high prices have already caused many companies to put a lot of effort into less cobalt-intensive chemistries, like the NMC811 chemistry, which is like eight parts nickel, one part cobalt, one part uh, manganese, versus the 111, which is equal parts of all three which is currently used today. So that seemed to be a core topic that was highlighted and it seemed, seemed to be said, you know, that that was more or less ready to roll. You know, this 811 and NMC versus 111 was basically ready, ready for market. Do you know anything more about that? I don't. I, all I will offer is that a lot of things seem ready for market until they aren't. And so once we do see the first uh, deployments, then we'll know that, yes, it's ready. I would imagine whenever that happens, then all the, a lot of excitement around cobalt prices will dissipate because speculators will realize, oh, maybe this stuff isn't quite as uh, in shortage or insufficient and, balance as we thought, and then the price collapses, like what happened. But, but how much insight do we actually have to win players like LG Chem, Samsung, SDI, SK Innovation are, are starting to use these, you know, is, this is stuff they protect pretty well. I mean, this is not really public. Uh, I mean, we know generally the chemistries they use, but do you think we would get public update that they've switched to 811 or 
or you think it would be more of a hidden hidden shift? I wouldn't know if they would publicize it so much as their automaker clients. So if, uh, for example, BMW uh, was to decide that this new chemistry is ready, if they've got no worries about they've worked out all the eventualities, then I'm sure that the first big automaker, the first big OEM to make the switch is going to be proud to loudly announce that. I don't think it's likely to be LG, uh, Chem, or these other players because they can probably make it. They probably already sample many, uh, many materials. It's just whether the big prominent client says it's ready, which is kind of the, the gating factor. Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that was one thing. And then Tesla also, you know, their, their uh, sort of off the record <laughs> response was, you know, that they, they also, they use a different chemistry and NCA that doesn't rely as much on cobalt anyway. Some of the responses uh, under the article were that it's still like 15% uh, of the battery. And if you, and you know, someone had done calculations, even even with NMC 811 and NCA, if you scale up the EV industry to the degree that it's ex- we're sort of expecting by 2025, that that's still a dramatic increase in cobalt demand. But yeah, the basic idea is that you know the market will find a way to to get cobalt to the needed players. So another you know another story related to this was that BMW right after this actually announced that they'd closed a 10-year lithium and cobalt supply deal. You know, so we sort of, we've been seeing these announcements pop up, BMW, Volkswagen, and had a deal with Glencore was working on that it publicized, that well, came out of last year. I think the automakers are quite keen to say, hey, we, we're on top of this. We have our supply chains, you know, we're, we're working on our supply chains as well. I think they don't want to be seen as too far behind the curve and, and too threatened by Tesla or others from China, perhaps, who might come in with a more developed supply chain. Do you have any more thoughts on these, uh, these announcements, the scale of them compared to what's needed, uh, what the purpose uh, is of this? I think that if a component has a steady price, like cobalt before a few years ago, then no one really worries about uh, negotiating supply agreements because no one's worried about security of supply. So I would think that these announcements, this, uh, this prospecting almost, or the staking of claims, will agree to buy lithium and cobalt from you, in BMW's case, at undisclosed terms, of course, confidential terms, which probably are related to the market price anyway. They don't want to pay more than the market price. This uh, represents a, a response to scarcity. And once again, if, if and when the 811, uh, the less cobalt, dependent chemistries begin scaling up and other alternatives arrive, then the price will go down and no one will be worried about it anymore. So it's just, uh, it's, it's sort of par for the course. If there's something where people are worried about being left out on, then they do these defensive maneuvers. So. And how much do you think the industry really is prepped to, you know, uh, there's been big announcements, especially in the last year. I mean, I think the Tesla Model 3 sort of heavily got the conversation going, but then BMW had made announcements for years about electrifying models. And then last, you know, after Dieselgate, Volkswagen jumped in pretty strongly. But then last year, you had Volkswagen, Daimler, Volvo, BMW, Ford. One after another, automakers were making pretty significant, you know, announcements about their plans for electrification. And the question that, you know, a lot of people have had, are these real solid plans with the supply chains worked out pretty well by now? Or were they just reactive responses to demand for Tesla and sort of a delay tactic to say, hey, we're coming too, wait for us, you know. 
Uh, do you have much uh, opinion on on what this has been, and and if how much they they actually are uh, set up to to pursue these targets that they've announced? I think they are set up to pursue these announcements. I suppose I think the real upheaval in the car industry, and I think Daimler, uh, I think Clean Technica had a story quoting Daimler on this, is that it's not so much the car brands themselves that are going to get creatively destroyed. I think Schumpeter had that creative destruction expression. It's the suppliers who make uh, combustion-related components. And even there, like no one wants to be the next Kodak, absolutely. But at the same time, Kodak's biggest rival, Fuji, successfully pivoted into cosmetics from film and cosmetics, interestingly, are a higher margin business than photofilm. And the reason was that some of their expertise with collagen is, is very important for cosmetics. I guess it tightens skin or, or whatever the heck it is. And so while I would imagine that the auto companies are kind of taking their time, they don't want to spend a whole whack of money on something where they're not sure if there's going to be super huge uptake. Nissan actually has capacity, has had capacity for 500,000 Leafs a year ever since the original Leaf got launched. And so everyone's looked at that and said, hmm, maybe we shouldn't uh, expect that regular car customers are totally ready for EVs yet. Everyone's cautious, which has opened the, uh, the door for Tesla. Yeah, well, we've definitely, we've definitely had stories in the past. I, I once ran through a Ford, uh, Ford Financials and you know, sort of estimates of you know, their factories and whatnot and, and tried to look at, hey, what would happen if they did a very quick transition to EVs? And what would happen is they would have to write off a shit ton of, you know, engine manufacturing uh, capacity, uh, you know, workers related to that. You know, I scratch off the IP they had on engines they developed over decades. Uh, so there's, uh, there's already this inherent kind of, hey, let's not move too quickly because we're going to lose all these assets we have developed. But this interesting story from Daimler, which is number two on Clean Technica in the past 48 hours right now, uh, mentions Mr. Dieter Mustache pointing out that, you know, I, I guess, I don't know this, you know, how, how detailed this is, but it sounds like when they had the big auto, the recession and the auto industry challenge uh, several years ago, that they sort of worked out deal with suppliers that protected them better because the suppliers got crushed more easily than the automakers did because they, their whole business was like shut down. Right. So so they, it sounds like they sort of worked out a deal where the large automakers will bail out suppliers if they're, <laughs> if they're all of a sudden uh, not needed. That seemed to be the story. Um, how much of that's actually an extra risk and how much is an, uh, kind of an excuse for going slower or, or for shareholders? To, I mean, basically, anyway, no matter what, the big automakers are going to have to, they're going to start, their finances are not going to look as pretty. They're going to look more similar to Tesla's, right? Uh, as the transition heats up. And then and then they have to explain to shareholders why. And so I think they're already trying to just to explain the pain, right? Yeah, so I think one thing to keep in mind is that because the auto industry deals with consumer products that are so big and the, the development timelines are so long, you do get these very deep relationships between suppliers and automakers. Tesla is unusual in that if it thinks a supplier has let it down, it actually says so publicly, which is not something yeah. I think that any yeah. other automaker would do because those suppliers have a lot of leverage on you. It's, it's a very, um, uh, what's that, uh, codependent? It's, it's kind of like right. if right. Daimler's major suppliers hurt, then 
that will actually translate into higher prices for Daimler for the remaining components they buy. So it's kind of a, um, it's delicate. It's not like software where, you know, not only do employees switch every couple of years in Silicon Valley, but companies come up and they kind of backstab each other or front stab each other like that White House guy said. Um, Scaramucci, the mooch. Scaramucci, yeah. yes, the mooch. Right. He's yes. more of a front stabber. Yes, that's right. And yeah. so, uh, again, I think that if the automakers or as the automakers uh, face this transition, it will be from managing the suppliers who lose out because, again, they've got long, it's almost like family in the sense that they can't really abandon them because those other big suppliers have lots of customers who buy Daimler vehicles or Ford vehicles because they're the customer, right? So yeah, it's, as, uh, it's, as usual, as usual, Matthew, you bring up really interesting points. You're all, you, I'm all, a lot of people love this podcast, I think, because you bring it, you bring in, you know, more than just hits the eye. But yeah, it, I mean, when you were talking, I was thinking, you know, Tesla's brought a lot of stuff in-house because they sort of had felt a need to, and they wouldn't attack their in-house team so much and say our in-house teams, you know, they wouldn't be very harsh on them. And they, they will say they make, make mistakes, you know, Tesla's very open about making mistakes, but uh but this kind of, yeah, the, the more, it's sort of purely free market, the way they, they're willing to say things about suppliers. And I imagine we'll, we'll talk about this in another podcast when it happens again. Uh, but as you say, with the, with the large automakers, they have these partnerships that are not, they're not in-house development, but they're also not just like pure free market competition. They're like these very developed practically family partnerships and whatnot. And, and we're seeing this, uh, this with this news from Daimler. Uh, and, and I would say also, I mean, it just gets to the messy nature of a big industries don't want quick transitions because that gets really messy quick and that causes a lot of challenges for them. You know, they want sort of as much business as usual as possible. And if they have to transition, they want it to go slowly, right? So, you know, I was talking with a top uh, vice president at a, at one of the top global energy companies in Abu Dhabi as well, and talking about how messy the transition away from fossil fuel power plants to renewable energy and, and also from uh, gas mobiles, diesel cars to electric vehicles, how messy that is and, and all the different kind of things we don't think about like this that are going to have to be dealt with, you know. So, uh, but anyway, let's jump to um, a different Daimler story. Huh? Sure, yeah. So Daimler's are very uh, foresighted now. Uh, investment in a car to go uh, is paying off or maybe paying off some dividends. I think it, it's a, a genius move. Um, there was a recent story about uh, Vancouver, my uh, city of birth and the city I can't afford to live in. So I live in a suburb. Uh, being <laughs> car to go's most successful city in North America. Basically. It's, a, it's always been ranked really high and I, but I went to visit and I, I didn't expect like, it was going to blow me away, but I put it up there at the top of my list for favorite cities with Barcelona and Paris. And so it's really an amazing city. Oh, well, thank you. That's uh, I guess that's why uh, everyone who has money wants to move here. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So Vancouver has, I think, about 150,000 of the 700 odd thousand residents are members of car to go So you've got like one in five people. And when you cut that down to the driving driving age, you know, take away the kids, take away the elderly, you're probably close to one in four. car to go itself claims that about eight out of 10 Vancouver drivers have memberships in the car sharing arrangement, in the car sharing service, which is phenomenal. And 
I think there are a couple angles here which are fantastic in terms of reducing emissions, but there is that one sort of hidden secondary angle which could be a bit of a barrier. And the, the big advantage is largely stemming from high density. So Vancouver actually has four car sharing services. Uh, there's car to go the elephant in the room. There's Moto, which has been around for about 20 years. It started off as a cooperative auto network. I was a member actually for a few years before the turn of the millennium. I lived in Burnaby already, and so they didn't have many cars out there. Uh, there's Evo, a local automotive association service, and Zipcar is also there slightly. I have read, but haven't been able to find the link that Cardigo claimed at one point that they were making money in Vancouver, which I wouldn't be surprised by. And the reason is that, that Vancouver has a lot of density. Um, there are a lot of towers and low-rise uh, apartment buildings and condos. And so you have a whole bunch of people who, who are all located sort of centrally. It's not, not quite as dense as Manhattan, but if you imagine relatively... Uh, fewer areas with single unit garaged houses, then that's the track where Vancouver is on. And another thing that has happened is that... Uh, and I would just jump in real quickly to say, you know, aside from density, the, the other, you know, if you have good bicycling and transit options and walking, good walkability, uh, if people are using these modes for work, then car sharing becomes a lot more compelling for them to add into their, uh, their mix. And so Vancouver has good all across the board mixture of bicycling transit walkability and density so it's uh, it's sort of it's an ideal place for for the car sharing future mobility dream yeah. that's right vancouver is kind of a perfect storm and so uh, one of the challenges that uh, car to go uh, respondents to surveys say is that there's kind of a there's kind of a berlin wall between vancouver and burnaby the next suburb in that burnaby doesn't really have that much in the way of bike transport I mean, bus service is shared, but a lot of the car services are restricted to Vancouver simply to make sure that they don't have to buy all that many more vehicles uh, to service all the nearby suburbs. So it's a bit like going from West Berlin in the old days to East Berlin, where you're on this glorious, almost gold-plated bike lane, and then you hit Burnaby, and uh, yeah, it turns into this kind of very crude bare minimum budget kind of, uh, kind of thing. I say that as a resident of Burnaby, uh, it's a fine place. It's just, uh, it's not quite uh, as ambitious as Vancouver. In terms the, way, of the way you were talking about it, I thought right off the bat, I was like, do you live there, Matthew? <laughs> I was like, I could, I feel like the way you're uh, sort of self-deprecating uh, <laughs> talk is going, this is where you live. That's but, right, uh, that's right. Also easy to see you as an early co-op car sharing member. You know, it's great, great to have such a, forethinking, reflective, progressive on our podcast. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, uh, I, uh, I, mean I, did, uh, I did mention my struggles over this, uh, this pipeline uh, last episode, which many people have given great feedback on. Thank you very much. And, and that's the thing. It's like, uh, how do I serve the overall cause? I'm very idealistic. I fall short of those ideals so often. And yet, uh, that's kind of the point of having ideals that point you in the right direction. Just before getting too far off topic, the, one of the really interesting things that the Vancouver uh, Building Codes or the City Council has done is it has allowed developers of these condo towers to put in fewer parking stalls. So instead of having like a guaranteed two parking spots per apartment, you might have one and a half or even you know, 1.2 or something. And the developers love this because they don't have to dig as big a hole in the ground when they build the towers. So, so that saves them money. And the trade-off is they have to provide a bunch of spaces for car sharing services. And now suddenly it's not like you have to walk down the street in the rain or um, something like that. 
uh, for your second mobility option in case you occasionally need it, you can just go down to the garage and it's already right there. You kind of know it's there and if it's not there, you find out within 30 seconds of leaving your door and you can try to make alternate arrangements. So for a variety of reasons, Vancouver is really uh, at the forefront of this, which is fantastic. I suppose one, one minor downside, uh, part of the reason for this success in part must be because of the high real estate prices because generally if people can afford stuff, they buy them. Elon Musk doesn't have a timeshare on his jet. He has his own private jet. And uh, you know, many families in India, as soon as they can get a car, if they can upgrade from a moped, they get that car. You know, they don't go for the car sharing service uh, because it's kind of a, a, a convenience thing. So having the car sharing vehicles in the garages of buildings that's again that that allows that convenience to percolate through. Though the major downside, and it's it's the biggest downside, but I I totally take the trade off. When you have high density buildings, that means people have to ask their stratas or their building councils to put in EV chargers. We did have uh, the city of Richmond recently, which introduced a, a bylaw saying that all new apartment towers have to have chargers for every single parking location, which is fantastic. But that still does leave uh, all sorts of other buildings and all the other uh, municipalities which, which don't have that rule yet. So the one downside of high density um, urban living is that it does complicate things. It can complicate things a little bit on the, uh, on the installation of EV chargers that could slow down perhaps adoption a little bit. But um, I'll definitely take that trade off if it means that per a recent Berkeley study, uh, you can get rid of up to 11 cars on roads by having rideshare services. If, if nothing else, that should make it easier to uh, facilitate the transition because now you, you need to buy 11 fewer electric vehicles to replace those combustion vehicles on the roads. But you mean uh, car, actually car sharing, car to go? Because that's an interesting thing about, uh, I think, car sharing versus what has been called ride sharing, but it's really app-based taxis or, or ride-hailing app taxi ride, uh, ride hailing, uh, Uber, Lyft, this kind of thing. Uh, with car sharing, you know, you get a car near where you are and you take it somewhere. And the idea is that you don't use a car for everything, you use car less. With Uber and Lyft, you yeah, this kind of model, you're actually calling someone to drive to you and take you somewhere else. So there's actually a problem of extra vehicle miles traveled, not less. Uh, there's fewer cars perhaps, but more driving. Uh, so this, uh, the car sharing model is better for getting cars off the road. It's just not quite as convenient if there aren't cars everywhere you want them <laughs> uh, when you want them. But uh, well, it's, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's fascinating. I, I wrote a piece a couple weeks ago, I think it was about what it would take to get people to shift to robo taxis, not, uh, you know, we, we talk about them, we talk about the shift is coming, uh, you know, there's always a debate whether it really is or not. But there's a question of people right now own cars very illogically. It's not logical to spend so much money on, a, on something that depreciates so, so quickly uh, and so much. Yet people do it often without needing to or, you know, they, it would make more sense for them to use to rent a car for their, their car needs or to get a car sharing. But there's this status issue that you brought up. And, you know, I was I first started using Zipcar in 2004 and I was like, wow, I get, I get a, I can choose from all these different cars in cities all over the world. And, you know, I can use this car this day, this car another day. 
it's actually like makes made me feel like, hey, I was higher status because all of a sudden I had a lot of vehicle choice and all these vehicles were mine, right? Um, oh, yeah. And I've, and I've really felt like that's never been marketed super well. Like, I think it's, I think this, this, these services have to mar be marketed in a way that raises your status. There's too much focus on efficiency, on saving money, on this and that. I think there should be a more emphasis on, hey, you get a selection, you, you know, you're like a rich, a super rich person who has 10 cars to choose from at any given time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I, I would like to see that incorporated more to, to, to basically get more people to say, hey, I don't need a car. I can have high status without having a car. I can have higher status without having a car, perhaps, you know? Uh, I, I feel like we might go there, but it's still a question mark in my head. But uh, I think like, like you're emphasizing in places like Vancouver that are high density, high cost of living, and they have these very expensive, large apartment buildings. If those places can, can incorporate them and they become more part of the package of high class condo living in cities, then I think you start to get that status change and you start to get that shift. And I was looking, cause I always think of the smart cars with Car2Go and it doesn't really match that, that vision. But actually they, they do have some higher class Mercedes uh, in their fleet. Uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not promoting that we define ourselves by our objects and our vehicles and our, you know, our, uh, what do you call it? Materials, possessions and whatnot. Um, but I think that's just, that's a fact of how humans are to a pretty strong extent. So we have to I think, use that to our advantage if we want to shift people uh, out of cars and out of uh, gas mobiles more quickly. So it's good to see Daimler seeing that potential and, and working it. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, especially on that raising the status thing. Certainly Tesla has shown us that uh, marketing uh, electric vehicles as more than just pragmatic utilitarian drudge mobiles, um, there's, there's definitely a need for that. And you're right, as soon as you get a Car2Go membership, you can actually use the service anywhere that Car2Go is. So there's like an exclusive club, like those airport clubs, where you know, if you're a business traveler or something, you get to hang out with a, with a fancy lounge. Yeah, I, got, yeah. I got upgraded by fluke to a business class uh, on a return flight from Japan once. And they had, a, they had a freaking like registered massage therapist thing inside that fancy yeah. area. Yeah. And like, holy cow, this is how the, this is how the 1% live. Um, yeah, I mean, I have to sort of sheepishly admit that I've gotten those several times from uh, work trips for Clean Technica where I get flown somewhere to speak or moderate or something and, and they put me in this in the business class. And you, it spoils you very quickly and you're, you're, it's very hard to not say, oh, you know, to not uh, let it enter your identity a bit you know and expectations people, kind of yeah your but also you know your your identity your your vision of your status this kind of thing you know it's a it's very hard to not start to you know let that influence you so um i think uh, but what you're saying you know i think again if these premium sort of brands and premium properties and cities lead the way with this uh, and it is funny to bring up Tesla because, you know, Elon Musk generally sees himself, I think, as engineer and design guy. That's what he, he said he loves. And uh, but, you know, people claim, <laughs> I, I think, very, very, you know, that's quite rude to claim that he's just a marketer. You know, he's a but he is actually a really freaking good salesman. Right. He's a he's a top salesman. He sells hats and uh, flamethrowers like it's no one's business. 
and he's sold this, uh, this, the status of electric vehicles in a way that no one had ever done and has, has been able to really replicate, I would say. And if he does that with car, sh car sharing or ride sharing with Tesla's, uh, then that opens the door for others to follow and to, to also be premium electric car sharing, ride sharing brands and whatnot. And, uh, and I think that's when you really get a bit of a, a bit of a mass market shift, like we've seen with, with the demand for Tesla's where you get more than the, the hippies and the techie nerds, you get actually the, the mass market saying, Hey, I want this too, because all the, all the high status people want it and it's cool and it's great. And not to say we're all sheep, but you know, we, we do rather resemble sheep sometimes, don't we? Sad to say, but yes, yes. Uh, and, um, yeah, I was going to make a comment about being sheared, but, uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so yep, that, um, we'll probably wrap it up here for now then. So, yeah, thank you all for listening. We uh, hope you had a safe commute and uh, join us next week to get your electric fix. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for holding down the fort with Nicholas, and hopefully Nicholas will join us next week or, or uh, give one of us a break for the, for the week. Uh, cheers. Cheers.